from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to this new episode of the CER podcast. My name is Christian Odendahl. I'm the chief economist at the CER and host of this episode, which will look at Europe's gas crisis. And I have just the CER experts. I need to make sense of it all. The gas market and the gas crisis is also a climate issue. And I'm curious to find out more about how climate change is behind the surge in gas prices and whether it's even a good thing. And I'm glad that our climate and energy expert is with us, Elisabetta Cornago. Elisabetta, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. The gas market is also an EU internal market that is highly regulated, as it is a special kind of market. And our competition and regulation expert, Zach Myers, is also with us. Hi, Zach. Hi, Christian. Good to speak. Last but not least, gas, as we know, is also a geopolitical issue, with Russia being a major, some would say too big, a supplier. And our director of foreign policy is not just a fluent Russian speaker, he's also the former UK ambassador to Latvia, and so knows a thing or two about the geopolitics of it all, Ian Bond. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Christian. So as an economist, I have thought about the recovery from this pandemic, about public debts, about inflation, and sort of what supply bottlenecks could mean for Europe. But it did not occur to me that gas could become such a big issue. So... Elisabetta, help me out. Why are gas prices so high? Did people think uh, there would be no winter this year, so we didn't need as much? What's going on? I'm sure there are many reasons, but maybe you can give us your top three, maybe. Right. So, uh, as you said, there are many reasons, but I think we can we can group them into three. Um, so I'd say, you know, on the demand side, on one hand, economic recovery in general on a global level is pushing up uh, demand for gas uh, as also an input into electricity generation. Uh, but also there are weather-related you know, um, aspects of, of the push for, for higher gas demand. A cold winter, last winter, and a warm summer just a few months ago have done so that are, there are basically has been higher competition between Europe and Asia uh, for gas. On the supply side, there have been several constraints, disruptions, bottlenecks in gas pipes, both from Russia and Norway uh, into Europe, so that has not helped. And all of this has contributed basically to the difficulty in replenishing gas reserves, because gas reserves today are uh, lower, about 25% below the historic average in Europe. Again, because, you know, colder than usual winter last year, difficulties in replenishing them over summer, which is usually what happens. But with high prices for gas over summer as well, that basically sucked out uh, supply out of Europe and, and into Asia. So, you know, all of these uh, contributes To, to high prices on, on the gas market. And, and of course, uh, on, to, to some extent, there is also the fact that there have been fewer alternatives to gas for electricity generation. That's, that's a bit of another story, but related as well. So the gas prices are leading to higher electricity prices. Is, is uh, power generation still so heavily reliant on gas these days? So that's, I think that's a very interesting uh, question because gas makes up for about 20% of EU electricity generation across the continent, right? There are countries which are more reliant on, on gas. Um, Italy, for instance, but also Britain outside the EU, they, they rely uh, on, on gas for about 40% of their power generation. So 
it doesn't make up for, for you know, the majority of electricity supply, but it's still today mainly the, the marginal, essentially, uh, electricity uh, source or energy source for electricity generation. What does that mean? It means that it's the highest price uh, energy source, the last energy source, basically, to enter the market to provide that final, uh, I guess, electron or, or energy source to, pro to produce the final electron uh, on energy supply. And that's the price, the price setting electron. Now, that's tricky, right? Because it means that even though there's a large share of electricity, which is generated with energy sources with very low operating costs, renewables, but also hydro and, and, and nuclear, um, the, the price uh, on the electricity market is set by gas today. And that's also due to the fact that coal, you know, the alternative that used to be uh, a bit cheaper is actually being kicked out of the market even more due to high carbon prices. That's another story that has been contributing a bit to, to slightly higher prices on the electricity market, but only to about 20% of the surge on, on power prices. So I'm sure we'll, we'll also delve into that a bit more later. Okay, Zach, let, let's have a quick look at the, at the market structure of European gas. So and during the liberalization of Europe's energy markets, uh, gas was supposed to become a competitive Europe-wide market with spot prices, with wholesale market competition, fewer contracts that were linked to the to the oil price. And to some extent, it has become such a market, right? But there was always a bit of a mismatch, I think, between a competitive internal market and Russia being by far the biggest supplier, up to a third of the market, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so even if you have a competitive market, if Russia is the marginal supplier, say, it can squeeze out quite high prices. So how can the market work despite this tension? Can you enlighten us? Sure. Um, what you've said is right, Christian. Um, due to liberalisation, an increasing amount of gas is now getting traded at market prices and not just prices that are pegged to oil. And this has had some pretty positive outcomes. It's made the market a lot more efficient and it's lowered prices overall. Um, it's also meant that Europe's actually weathered a lot of past supply issues since liberalisations. They've sometimes led to prices spiking, but they haven't led to prolonged shortages like we might have seen in the past. As you say, one of the long-term goals that liberalisation hasn't achieved is to diversify supply. And there's a couple of different problems um, that have led to that occurring. One of which Elisabetta has already talked about, which is that Europe needs gas more than ever now because it's you know, essentially the fuel of last resort now that coal is no longer in the mix and renewables won't always provide a, a reliable supply. Um, there's other factors too. So Europe's own supply of gas has decreased dramatically. You know, a really big um, facility in the Netherlands is now being shut down. Uh, you know, the UK has, you know, for a couple of decades now, not been a big supplier. And that means that more and more gas is getting imported. And Russian gas is by far the, the cheapest option that's available. There's a few other sources like Norway, Libya, Algeria, and also the ability to send in liquid gas through cargo. But all of this is you know, rather more expensive and difficult for Europe to secure enough of it, given so much is going to China and India these days. So that kind of sounds like bad news because it does mean that Europe has become uh, more reliant on Russia as a source of gas. But I would say that liberalisation has caused some improvements because there's been a lot of investment in creating the facilities to diversify supply, such as terminals to receive liquid natural gas and more integration of European countries into one market. So that means that if Russia ever stopped supplying or the price became you know, higher than the other options that are available, Europe could take advantage of those other options. We wouldn't necessarily see 
see huge shortages. The other point that I think is important is that the Commission has enforced EU energy and competition laws against Gazprom, and that's reduced its ability to act unfairly and kept the market more competitive than it otherwise would have been. So it means, for example, that um, Gazprom hasn't been able to control uh, to the same extent it would otherwise, which suppliers get access to their pipelines, and you know it can't lock um, European suppliers into the high prices that are higher than what's available in market hubs in Europe. Uh, so I, I think that liberalisation hasn't achieved everything that we would have wanted, but it has kept prices lower and supply more reliable than it otherwise would have been. But I've seen I've seen press reports arguing that Russia has cut gas supplies by a certain amount compared to last year or so, where it seems that in a competitive market, there is no sort of obligation to supply gas beyond what is contractually agreed. And Gazprom, as far as I know, is delivering on its long-term contractual obligations. Um, so, so how does such a competitive European gas market deal with security supply issues? Or is this market design just prone to sort of economic blackmail by a, by a dominant supplier? Well, look, it's always going to be a market that requires some regulation. And that's because unlike a lot of other markets where we just want the cheapest price and the highest quality possible, what we really want to see are resilience and security. And also we need to make sure that we're achieving the green transition. So there's always going to be kind of extrinsic factors that require regulation and require suppliers to change their behavior to achieve a different result than what the market by itself would, would achieve. And so, you know, there'll always be some need for suppliers to buy short-term gas contracts, but regulation really needs to ensure that competition is sustainable and suppliers are acting responsibly, you know, by buying up a long time in advance. So there's different measures that different European countries are taking to try to achieve this. So um, some countries like Poland and Spain are saying that um, suppliers need to achieve minimum filling requirements to store gas over summer so that there's enough left in winter. This is something that, again, Elizabeth said, has been a problem this year. Um, and it also links back to you know, the more general aims that we have for the energy market. We want greater energy efficiency so that less energy, you know, less gas and, and less power is needed in the long run. And then you know, there are obviously geopolitical concerns about trying to get greater access to, uh, to other supplies of gas, even though we, that we know that they're going to be more expensive in the short term. So there's no kind of silver bullet, but there is definitely a case for, for regulation to make sure that supplies are acting responsibly and not just trying to take advantage of short-term cheap prices like we've seen in recent years. Turning to you, Ian, because we talked about Russia. Um, for Russia, gas is not just a commodity, right? But a major source of income, first of all, and a geopolitical tool. For a long time, it seemed that uh, liquefied natural gas was making it harder and the competitive European market, as, as Zach just said, making it harder to make good money or use gas as a weapon. Um, and now are we seeing the opposite? I mean, Russia torn between making money, very good money, by supplying more to Europe or exerting political pressure on its neighbors. Uh, so, so far, at least, uh, Russia is willing to sacrifice a lot of money for political leverage, it seems. But maybe we start with a more general question. So, so what is Russia aiming for here, if there is a geopolitical angle to this? I think the first thing that Russia is aiming for is to remind Europe who's boss when it comes to the gas market. Um, and I think Zach has set out very well um, the, the dynamics of the gas market in, in recent years. Um, but from a Russian point of view, you know, it's been very much a, a buyer's market in which Russia's leverage has been relatively limited. Um, 
and suddenly the boot is on the other foot. And of course, um, Russia wants to restore things to how they were before liberalization of European markets and so on, um, and to get back to the, the good old days of fixed price take or pay contracts where Europeans had to pay for gas even if they didn't use it. Um, so, you know, now there is a shortage of, of gas available from elsewhere. There's a shortage of gas on the spot market. Yes, there may be short-term losses for Gazprom in withholding supplies, but in the longer term, I think Gazprom believes that they can get Europeans to come to their senses and go back to the, the old ways of doing business. And we've had Putin in, in recent days um, stressing both that, you know, things were so much better when the, the Europeans had these long-term contracts and could rely on supplies and didn't have to rely on the unreliable market, um, but also making the implicit threat um, to existing supply routes by suggesting that the, the gas pipeline across Ukraine, which traditionally has been one of the main supply routes, is in such bad condition that it could blow up at any time. Now, that's a, a suggestion which has been dismissed by Ukrainian engineers. There's no reason to suppose that that is true. But there is a history of politically inconvenient pipelines suffering mysterious accidents um, when the Russians find it convenient for, for that to happen. Um, so, you know, I think one should take seriously the possibility that the Russians could sabotage um, the pipeline across Ukraine. And that brings us on to Nord Stream 2. Well, exactly. One of your and my favorite topics. Um, it seems that Nord Stream 2 has a role to play in this crisis. Um, it has not yet received the regulatory approval. Uh, but the Russian side, if I read this correctly, has already started filling the pipeline with gas. Um, so is Russia withholding gas supplies from Europe to force the EU to approve Nord Stream 2? Yeah, and they're not, they're not bothering to hide that as an intention. Putin's press spokesman said last month that the price of gas in Europe would fall if Nord Stream 2 started operating. And that was clearly designed to put pressure on the German government and the German regulator to get it certified and operating quickly. Uh, and uh, the problem with this argument is that actually Nord Stream 2 doesn't bring additional gas to the European market. It just changes the route from the Ukrainian pipeline to the direct route from Russia to Germany. That's where you come to the kind of geopolitical consequences, because that means that Russia can cut off gas to, to Ukraine, which it couldn't do before. It can exploit the fact that Nord Stream 2 is a divisive issue in the European Union between Germany on one side and Poland and the Baltic states on, on the other. You know, that's an added bonus for, for the Russians anytime you can get the Europeans arguing amongst themselves. I mean, from my perspective, much as I would like the incoming German government to stop Nord Stream 2, I don't think it's that's going to happen. And you may want to comment on the, the coalition dynamics there. So I think that, you know, the most that Ukraine and others can hope for 
is that after the agreement between Biden and Merkel on what to do about Nord Stream 2, Germany accepts some responsibility for keeping the heating on in Ukraine this winter if Russia does in fact try to, um, to cut the supply through Ukraine. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to, to, um, to predict what the coalition agreement will say about Nord Stream 2, but it seems to me that um, with the agreement between Merkel and Biden, I think this ship has sailed. And it's certainly a very uncomfortable situation for, for example, the Greens to find themselves in, in a winter with a gas crisis, uh, with the pressure mounting to approve Nord Stream 2 to relieve uh, some pressure and on, on the European gas market which surely will also, as you said, will be a divisive issue um, in Europe. Um, and turning to Europe, Elisabetta, the, um, the gas crisis is already becoming sort of political dynamite in some, in some countries. Can you give us an idea of, of how important this gas crisis is politically in Europe? Absolutely. So I think um, no government likes to see, you know, skyrocketing energy prices as, as we go towards winter. So that's, that's a given. And um, the weight, I guess, uh, the, the pressure of, of energy prices has been stronger in those countries where a larger share of uh, the, the consumer pool relies upon uh, variable energy prices. And so they have been basically immediately exposed uh, to this uh, price increase. Uh, Spain is an example. So you have had uh, several uh, EU member states trying to find ways, you know, more or less creative, more or less rapid to limit the increases in consumer energy bills through direct subsidies uh, in France, for instance, or suspending or, or cutting energy taxes, which burden power bills, uh, such as in, in Italy and in Spain. There's also another political, let's say, aspect to this, which is how do you finance then these, these energy tax or these subsidies, for example. And, and for instance, Spain has actually found a rather creative, innovative, but also controversial way to go about this. And that has been basically limiting the excess profits uh, of power generators that have been basically cashing on the higher uh, electricity prices uh, while enjoying their stable and low operating costs. Again, think of nuclear and, and hydro in the Spanish market. Uh, so given, you know, high uh, gas prices and high carbon prices were pushing up wholesale power prices, they basically pocketed all the what we call windfall profit that, that, that came uh, with that. And so the Spanish government decided to come in with an exceptional sort of um, tax extraction, you know, take a slice of those extra profits and use them to support consumers in this uh, particular energy crunch. Zach, in, in, in the UK, it seems to be an issue as well. What, what, what is the situation there? Yeah, so the UK, like some of the other European countries that have done the most to liberalise, has also seen the greatest price increases. And um, at least in the UK, there's a couple of reasons why this is. So uh, the UK has virtually no storage facilities for gas, unlike a lot of other European countries. That's largely because of UK's history as a gas producer it meant it didn't need those facilities. And um, the largest one, uh, the rough facility, shut down three years ago. So really that means that the UK is much more vulnerable. They can't buy up cheap supplies in summer and use them, use them in winter. The other point is that UK, more so than the European average, is reliant on gas um, as a source of electricity. And then, of course, there's just been the more general issues around high demand coming out of lockdown and particularly low generation of renewables um, in the last year. So in the UK, Liberalisation led to a huge number of supplies entering the market. Many of them are really small. And so they were making the most of 
uh, gas prices being low by buying them at spot prices rather than having long-term contracts to supply gas to their customers, which uh, is the kind of practice that the larger suppliers have. So they'll buy gas a, a year or two in advance in slow increments so that they can then average out price increases and decreases and consumers don't get hit with the full scale of price volatility that they otherwise would. And so, you know, the government really should have done something about this because, you know, these prices were never going to last. Uh, but of course, you know, get, having low gas bills is an important political issue. And so the government didn't want to be stepping in and saying, no, these prices have to go up. So there was always going to be a problem when they did go up because um, these suppliers, you know, they agree a two year deal with their consumer to have gas supplied at a low price. And then as soon as the wholesale price goes up, these suppliers have, you know, you know they're, they're supplying their customers at a loss and that's not a sustainable way to run a market. So what, this, what we've seen in the UK is huge numbers of suppliers now going out of business, especially the smaller ones. But of course, the big suppliers don't want the customers from these smaller suppliers because you know, they'd, they'd be taking them on at a loss. So it's really causing quite a lot of upheaval in the market. And you know, we started with six big suppliers in the UK before liberalisation. And it's quite likely that we're going to see about the same number of suppliers surviving by the end of this year. So, so, so I guess it just proves that liberalisation is something that needs to happen carefully and with a proper degree of regulatory um, supervision. And, and that's not what's happened in all uh, European countries. So, Elisabetta, one of the... One of the things that, that business may, may worry about is, is climate change in this context. So we do know that sort of higher gas prices are unpopular, or higher energy prices. We also know that we need higher prices for fossil fuels or rather for carbon emissions. Um, but this, how it's playing out now, is not the way we wanted this to play out, right? Or, or could this crisis be a crisis that we should not let go to waste uh, to make a push for more diversification away from gas? Uh, for, for faster insulation of homes and so forth. What, what do you reckon? What does it mean, this gas price, for the, for the climate debate? So this crisis is essentially coming in at a very delicate point for the policy discussion around how to precisely face climate action and, and how to adjust uh, price signals, uh, precisely, as you said, on, on carbon. So where we stand today, of course, carbon prices in the EU, so related to the existing emission trading scheme, have been going up significantly, uh, going above uh, 60 euros per, per ton of, of CO2. However, even in spite of, of this peak on the carbon market, uh, the weight of carbon prices on the electricity price is actually under 20%, as I said. So yes, there has been an increase. Yes, that there's likely to be you know, more of that in the future because the policy signal is going that way towards net zero. We're going to need higher carbon prices, but the importance of that in the current crisis is minimal. So that's, I think, one, one important message to, to sort of understand how the climate uh, policy action is affecting uh, energy prices today. Uh, another point which, which I think has been feeding into discussions around climate action is well, what about renewables? You know, one additional driver of uh, higher electricity prices uh, at this time has been the fact that, as also Zach mentioned, particularly wind generation has been lower than uh, what's the seasonal average uh, at this time. And so, again, that, that led to a higher reliance on, on gas on the power market. So some people are saying, well, what about, you know, can we rely then on, on more renewables for, for our electricity market? Is this uh, not going to put us in an even tighter spot, uh, given the... The, the, the intermittency of renewable energy sources as they are, you know, by their nature. 
Um, but I think the narrative from, from the Commission and from others on this has been the correct one. And that means that a way to counter this energy crunch is to invest in more renewables across the continent and better connect than EU markets through a, through a smarter, uh, you know, better interconnected, more reliable grid, put more energy storage online so that you can replenish storage when uh, you know, renewables are actually producing uh, massively and, and use that as an alternative really to, to, to gas storage that is actually uh, putting us in a difficult spot today. So facing the disadvantages of intermittency, but handling them through, I guess, a modernization of, of the grid, really. As you said, I think, you know, we shouldn't let the crisis go to waste and certainly energy efficiency will be, I hope uh, it should be certainly the winner of this crisis because retrofits are a no-brainer uh, in, in this market uh, environment. And, um, you know, looking forward, it's true that uh, the Commission over summer put on the table as part of its big climate package, the Fit for 55, an additional uh, emission trading scheme that would cover not only road transport, but also building heating. And so that type of price signal will directly, uh, you know, add on top of, of gas bills. Now, that looks even more politically complicated, right, at this stage. It wasn't popular over summer. We already had, you know, lots of strong reactions to that, but now it's, it's a bit difficult. At the same time, I think, you know, the good policymaker response to that is that if you do add carbon prices on, on the power bill with that type of policy tool and emission trading scheme, you actually have revenues that go with that. And with those revenues, you can protect the consumers, which are put in a difficult spot by, by an increase in bills. Whereas, you know, not gathering revenues, well, then you have to find other ways to, to protect the consumer. So I think there's a difference between giving consumers a signal in terms of here is what, uh, you know, uh, carbon emissions are, are costing us and, and allowing them to have a lump sum, um, you know, protective transfer to still protect their, their, their income and, and not leaving them vulnerable to, to movements on the power market. So um, what can the EU do now? Um, member states individual, but also the EU as a unit. Um, if you were Ursula von der Leyen and were asked to come up with proposals, what would be your top priority now? So in the short term, priority number one really is to protect uh, particularly vulnerable consumers. So the poorer households, but also SMEs uh, and, and to, to a certain extent those energy intensive industries. So all those categories which are particularly exposed to um, high energy prices. And um, the Commission has suggested that member states looking to targeted and time-bound support for these groups. And, and really, to, to a large extent, several member states have already done that without waiting, let's say, for the Commission to, to okay that, uh, as it has done uh, yesterday, uh, October 13th, by publishing a, a toolbox of uh, recommended policy interventions to, to achieve this goal. So what have member states been doing to, to protect uh, consumers? Uh, they have been uh, implementing tax breaks, basically suspending or lowering temporarily energy taxes or, or VAT on, on energy, uh, introducing price caps or introducing transfers, again, to, to specific categories of consumers. Uh, and the Commission suggested that these types of interventions can be financed also using ETS revenues, which have, of course, increased quite substantially in the past few months, given the important increase in, in carbon prices. Another way to finance these types of temporary interventions is by shifting uh, those costs that today are covered by um, energy taxes, um, such as uh, support for renewable energy development, shift them from the electricity bill to, um, to uh, for instance, general taxation, or in any case, move them outside the, the energy bill. And that's also something that 
frankly, should be considered in, in the longer term to rebalance a bit the cost of electricity as opposed to the cost of gas. Um, another thing that uh, that member states sh should should do is to consider emergency income support to make sure that households are not cut off from the grid if they have a difficulty uh, paying their bills uh, over uh, over winter particularly. Uh, and then the Commission also highlighted that um, it's understandable that uh, particularly uh, you know exposed businesses um, are are supported in in this respect, but this should be done in compliance with state aid rules. So I guess this is a bit what member states can do in the short term to try and mitigate the impact of the price spike but in the medium and long term really uh, this is about increasing resiliency of uh, european energy markets to to this type of price shock and so one of the ideas that have been floated again in, in the toolbox uh, published yesterday by the commission is uh, to think about uh, going towards joint procurement to to replenish uh, gas reserve stocks uh, and this is something that uh, would be uh, considered in the upcoming gas package to be presented in, in December. And another idea introduced in the toolbox is to think about ways uh, to develop joint electricity storage possibilities. Of course, I would say that the, the biggest fear, political fear on the horizon is that the current situation jeopardizes the European Green Deal just at the moment as um, we are moving uh, from the proposal itself being tabled by the Commission to discussing it uh, jointly with the, the, the European Parliament and with member states. So there is a risk that um, the, the current market situation uh, might deter uh, various stakeholders from thinking about introducing additional policy measures that will have a direct impact on energy bills. And these are notably the new ETS, which would cover building heating as well as road transport, but also uh, the revision of the energy taxation directive, which would uh, try to rebalance energy taxes, uh, both on, on electricity and gas, in order to align them with the aims of, of, uh, of, of the, the climate strategy as a whole. So, so, so that is obviously the, 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 riskiest, uh, the riskiest bit, that these two policy proposals are, are sunk. I think that would be uh, damaging to, to the transition because I think ultimately the, the tricky political message to, to, to put out there and, and, and really to highlight is that uh, there should be price signals uh, that, that consumers see, both households and businesses really, that reflect the carbon content of the energy they use. Uh, but the revenues uh, conveyed with these price signals, either the ETS or, or energy taxes, should be used in a smart way to lighten uh, the burden of uh, increased energy prices for, for vulnerable consumers, but also to boost investment in innovation and to boost investment in energy efficiency, because ultimately those are the elements which are going to be able to cut uh, energy demand and, and, and soften the blow and, and ultimately help consumers uh, transition into a, a low carbon um, energy market. So I guess that's a bit of a longer answer, but uh, this is a bit everything that's on the table right now. And with that, we come to a close uh, for today in the CR podcast. Um, Zach, Elisabetta, Ian, thank you so much. That was incredibly helpful. And in a way, I'm of two minds here. Um, I would love us four to come together again to discuss climate and the, and the gas crisis because it has been so interesting. But for Europe's sake, I, I hope we don't necessarily have to uh, during this winter. In any case, um, it's been um, incredibly helpful and interesting. Thank you so much, all three of you. Thank you. Thanks, Christian. Thanks, Christian.
And we hope that you all enjoyed listening to this episode of the CR Podcast. Uh, remember to subscribe and tell everyone about the CR Podcast. And uh, bye for now. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.